A reading from Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude up in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw in heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of the burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The word of the Lord. Well, we've been making our way through the book of Revelation. I was talking with uh, Dave Matheson. He is uh, the professor from Denver Seminary that kicked off our series. And he was telling me that uh, since we've started this study of Revelation, he's heard of a, a couple other churches that... Uh, are preaching Revelation. And then he said, but they decided to stop at chapter 3. And I thought, there's a whole lot of wisdom in stopping at chapter 3. <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, we know your spirit is in the midst of your people, in fact, in us, and that one of the things he does is gives us understanding, especially of your word. Pray that that would happen this morning, that your spirit would use your word to convict us and teach us and transform us. So 
so that we might be better equipped to live for you and your kingdom. May that happen this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So what I want to know is if you have just one word to describe how you're feeling about Revelation right now, we're kind of nearing the end, what would that word be? What word captures your feeling about Revelation at this moment? I want you to think of that word, and I want you to share it with your neighbor, okay? What's the word? Come on, you got to talk. Now, the great thing about sharing it with your neighbor, you can tell me what your neighbor said and not be embarrassed because it's your word, okay? So what are you hearing? What have you heard? What's that? Exciting. Doom. <laughs> I'm more in the doom side than the, well, yeah, okay, exciting, yeah. What's that? Hope. Thankful. Confu- thank you. An honest soul. <laughs> That's my word. <laughs> Confusing. I thought last service somebody said odd, O-D-D. They were saying odd, A-W-E-D. So anyway, so I heard something over here, widow. Victory, good. That's part of the thing. Disjointed. I, I actually, when I thought about this, I thought people might say dark kind of violent. I mean, we've been in this series of judgments. Um, Actually, today the book takes a turn. It's going to become more hopeful and more positive. Yes, I know there's birds eating carcasses on the battlefield, but trust me, it is (laughs) becoming more hopeful because now we're we're nearing the end of time, so everything we're going to talk about this morning is obviously still future um, and becoming hopeful of where things are going to end. Uh, Let me review for a moment where we've been and then I'll talk about where we're going to go this morning. We started this fall uh, back in the first three chapters of Revelation. Remember Revelation is a book written by a man named John. Not exactly sure who he is but he's on the island of Patmos. He may be the John who wrote the gospel. John we don't know for sure. He is writing to churches of his day, um, and they're struggling. Some of them are wrestling with how compromised they're becoming in terms of the culture at large. Some of them are facing persecution because they're not caving in. So he has this vision on the island of Patmos, and he writes it down. And the first three chapters really are a series of seven letters written to the churches that he's, he, he's communicating with. And positive and negatives, encouragements, and things they need to change to those churches. Then we took a break, and then we came back after uh, Janu- uh, January, and we, we dived back in, and we start with chapter 4. And in chapter 4, John sees this door that opens up to heaven, and he gets this vision of heaven, and it's a worship service, and the people of God there are worshiping God, and there's this scroll, and they're concerned about who can open it, chapter 5, we think this, the Lion of Judah is going to open it. We look over and it's the Lamb who's slain, who opens the scroll. And we, we talked about 4 and 5 being uh, kind of the kingdom manifested in heaven. And the scroll represents the plans of God, and this Lamb has the power, who is Jesus, to implement God's plan. And we suggested that the rest of the book from 6, let's go this way, from 6 to 19, is really how the, the, the plans of God get worked out in history. So chapter 6, 7, and 8 are the seals that are opened up. We read about the four horsemen and the 144,000. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 is about the, the seven trumpets and, and those judgments that come with those trumpets and we read about the, the angel who has the small scroll, and we read about the witnesses, the two witnesses. In, in chapter 12, uh, we confront uh, 
kind of a reenactment of the birth of Jesus. There's this woman having a baby and a dragon, and there's this war in heaven with Michael and his angels. And then we are introduced to these two beasts, the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea that takes us through chapter 14. Chapter 15, then, we, 15 and 16, were introduced to the bulls, the judgments of the bulls. Um, and one of the things we suggested that what is happening is what we call recapitulation, that we're, we're seeing the same events, what's happening during the church age, we're just seeing them from different perspectives. It's like when you go into the dentist and they take a panoramic x-ray of your, your teeth. I don't know if you've done that. They have this machine now. You just stand there and it, it, it takes pictures of your teeth and your jaw from all these different angles. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. We're getting these different uh, pictures of the same events, but they're getting worse and worse. So when you have the seals, a third of the earth is affected with, with the trumpets, a fourth of the, what, fourth, then with the, the, the trumpets, a, a third of the earth, and finally with the bowls, the whole earth is impacted. So it's this progression. And finally, after the bowls, in, in chapter 16, we're introduced to the prostitute riding a beast, which is the, the city of Babylon. And in chapter 18, she faces judgment and we get a series of woes and a lament. And now we're at chapter 19, which is looking forward. Now, here's the question. After all of that catastrophe that we've been exposed to in chapter 6 through 18, how do you find hope? When God has brought his judgment to bear against humanity and the systems of humanity, how are we to respond? How do we find any hope? Well, chapter 19 begins to give us a sense of that hope. This morning, we're going to look at, at three issues in chapter 19. We're going to look at the Hallelujah Chorus. We're going to look at the Wedding of the Lamb. And then we're going to look at the Warrior of Doom. And all three of them are, are to inspire us with a, a, a sense of hope towards the future. So let's talk about the Hallelujah Chorus, verses 1 through 3. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for the true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This actually is the original Hallelujah Chorus. I know when we think of the Hallelujah Chorus, we think of Handel and the Messiah, right? Written in 1741. And it's interesting, when Handel was writing the Hallelujah Chorus, that part of the Messiah, he, uh, it took him a week. And his servants during that week would bring him food, but he ate hardly any of it. He was so absorbed in writing this, this, this music. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, the Hallelujah Chorus was written based on this chapter, chapter 19. That's, that's the inspiration behind the Hallelujah Chorus. When it premiered in London, um, they sang the Hallelujah Chorus, and one of Handel's assistants found him and saw that he was just weeping. And he went up and he said, what's wrong? And Handel took uh, the the score of the Hallelujah Chorus and held on to it and said, I saw the face of God. So it just had this huge impact. But it comes here. And what is interesting, this word Hallelujah is actually a Hebrew word that gets transliterated into the Greek and then into English. It, it comes from two Hebrew words, Hallelujah, which means it's a command, you praise, and then Yah, which stands for Yahweh, which is one of the designations of how to describe God. So you praise God, and it became a, an exclamation, uh, uh, a shout of praise. Hallelujah. Now what's really interesting in this passage is although we, I, I label this the Hallelujah Chorus, they're not singing. I don't know if you noticed that. They're shouting it. The great multitude is shouting hallelujah, and then the 24 elders are on their face. They're crying out hallelujah, and then the multitude comes back again, and they're saying hallelujah, and it's so loud. It's, 
It says it's like the, the sound of rushing water. It's like you're standing before Niagara Falls and the noise. That's the noise of this. It sounds like thunder in the sky. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, <laughs> they're really into to this praise of God. And the question is, why? Why are they shouting hallelujah? Why are they to praise God? Well, I think there are two reasons. Um, back to this verses 1 through 3, we're going to look at what he says. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments that he's condemned the great prostitute. One of the reasons they're praising God is because God is implementing his justice. He's just. And they want things to be made right. And they're looking back on history and saying, oh, finally, things are going to be made right. So part of it is his justice. But there's a second reason found down in verse 6. It says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring, the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah. Again, they're not singing, they're shouting, hallelujah. But notice why. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. So not only are they praising God because he's just, but now they're praising God because he's sovereign, because he's the one in charge. And, and when you think about it, you need both of those elements to really break out into praise. Uh, think about it. If, if God is just, but he's impotent, he's not powerful, he doesn't reign, he's not in control, <laughs> then who cares? He may want the right things to come about, but he doesn't have the power to make them come about. But on the other hand, if God is sovereign, if he reigns, if he's powerful, but he's not just, then your response to that isn't praise, it's fear, because he could do anything he wants. He would be no better than the beast. But if you take his sovereignty, his power, and his justice, and put them together, then that gives you incredible hope. Because what it tells you is that sometime in the future, when God is ready, he will bring to bear his justice into all reality. Someday there's going to be a day of reckoning and things will be made right. I want you to think for a moment about what that means. I mean, I mean just make a mental list in your mind uh, of everything that's wrong with the world. All the injustice all the hate, all the racism, all the terror, all the violence, all the war, all the murder, all the trafficking, all the greed, all the abuse, all the mistreatment, all the oppression, all the poverty. I mean, the list could go on. This world is incredibly broken. But someday, all of the, the brokenness will be fixed. That means all the brokenness we've experienced in our lives will be fixed. And all the brokenness we've put onto others will be fixed. The day of reckoning is coming. How does Handel put it in, in, in the Hallelujah Chorus? The Lord God omnipotent reigneth forever and ever and ever. It's no wonder they're shouting, right? <laughs> no wonder they're shouting. That gives you hope to know that the God who, is, who reigns and who loves justice is going to so that's the hallelujah chorus. The second thing that gives us hope I is the, the wedding of the Lamb, verse 7 through 9. It says there, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And really, to understand this image, we, we need to understand some of the, the historical wedding practices of Judaism, first century Judaism. And, and basically, uh, there were three parts to the wedding ceremony, in a sense. 
back then, there was, first of all, the engagement, or what is called the betrothal. The young guy wanted to, to marry a woman. He would get his best man, and he would go visit not the young woman, but the young woman's father, okay? Because marriages weren't decided by the woman. They were decided by the father. And what this man had to do was he had to strike a deal to, in a sense, buy the right to marry the woman. He had to come up with a, a purchase price. So they, they would negotiate a purchase price for the woman. And once that price was decided on, and that amount of money was paid, or, or goats or cattle or whatever you had to give was paid, then in a sense the betrothal became official, the engagement became official, and, and it was binding. And even though they weren't living together yet or sleeping together yet, th that issue of betrothal was, was huge. Um, in fact, Osterley, a history guy, writes, so binding was the betrothal agreement, this covenant, that if the man died during the betrothal period, the woman was considered a widow. To break the betrothal agreement wa was the same as divorce. Serious stuff. So at the moment of the betrothal, the woman became consecrated or set apart for that man. A and then this agreement was sealed by, by sharing a cup of wine. And as they shared that cup of wine, her, her, her groom and the father would share this cup of wine and they would talk about a new covenant. New covenant. At that point, the second part of the wedding ceremony or procedure begins and that's the preparation for the wedding. The, the young man and his best man would leave and when they left, they were to go and prepare a place for the couple to live, either with their father, if they were still part of that family unit or strike off on his own where he was going to be. And then the bride was to prepare herself as well. Now this was for a set period of time, usually somewhere around 12 months. Everybody knew in general when the groom was going to come back, but they didn't know the specific day or the specific hour. And that it was always supposed to be a bit of a surprise. And oftentimes the groom would come back in the middle of the night. He, he would get dressed in his fancy clothes. He would grab his best man. He would grab his other groomsmen, his entourage, and they would head off to go get the bride. And, and just as they would arrive, they would shout, Come out! Come out! The bridegroom's here! And the bride was supposed to be ready. You know, middle of the night, she was supposed to get up, come out, have her veil on. Her attendants were supposed to come with her with lamps to light the darkness. And at that moment, there would be a ceremony that took place involving the word take, because now the groom was, has come to take his bride. And then he would take her off. And what they would do is then they would head to the wedding supper. They would go to the father's house, father of the groom, and... Uh, there, there, there had been preparations made for a huge celebration. There would be guests, and the guests would be dressed in fine attire, all the people important to them, and they would begin this massive celebration. And the celebration would last anywhere from 7 to 14 days. You think weddings are expensive now? 7 to 14 days, they would have this, this huge celebration of the wedding feast. Now you can think about how this metaphor applies to us, right? We're told that we are the bride and Jesus is our bridegroom. We are betrothed because he has paid a price for us and the price he has paid was his life. That betrothal has been sealed in this cup of wine that we call, that represents the new covenant of his blood. And now we are consecrated and engaged to him. And he has gone away, right, to prepare a place for us. John 14, 1 through 3 says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also 
may be where I am. Isn't that interesting how this metaphor applies to our relationship? In, in fact, uh, if you begin to think it through, it, it gives us a great kind of description uh, of the nature of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, first, it tells us that he loves us as his bride. No, we're, we're told a lot of things in Scripture about the nature of God's feelings for us, that we are his disciples, his followers, we're his body, we're his, his temple, at times we're called his children, at times we're called his friend. But, but this one I is unique because the, the relationship between a husband and wife I is unique. It's more intimate, it's more passionate. I in a sense, it's incredibly committed. And, and it's that imagery that he uses to describe his relationship with us. But not with us just individually. With us as his corporate community. In other words, what we see here is that if you want to know how God feels about his church, take a look at how a groom feels towards his bride. I, I mean, it's this radical commitment. We may not think much of the church we may not like the church, but I got news for you. Jesus is into his church. He values it more than, than, than we could perhaps even imagine because we're his bride. The second thing it tells us is that, that we're secure. I mean, he's made a, a payment for us, and the payment has been with his life. In other words, in one sense, we are an investment, and he has a vested interest in us. He doesn't want his church to flame out. He doesn't want us to flame out. He is for us. He wants to see his purpose accomplished in us. Nobody else may care about us, but he does. He's got too much on the line not to care about how we end up. So at those moments when we feel in our lives that nobody else pays attention, knows, or cares, that's not true. He does because he's vested. We're, we're secure in him. Third thing it tells us is that the key issue is loyalty. So we're in this betrothal period. In the betrothal period, you know, the worst thing that could happen is, is for the groom to come back and find that his bride has been sleeping around. To come back and, and find that she's in bed with someone else. Uh, you know, you don't want two brides. You don't want two grooms. You want your allegiance, your loyalty to be one. And that's what he expects. He doesn't want to share us with anyone. There's an exclusivity to this notion of bride and groom. And during the engagement, that's what you're saying. You're saying, hey, I, I'm, not, I'm not playing the field anymore. I've made my decisions. I've declared my allegiance. This is where my loyalty is. And nothing else is to compete with that. That means he wants to be the priority of our lives all of the time. And that, that allegiance is to be complete. It also gives us a great way of understanding the nature of sin. You know, typically we look at sin and we think of sin as kind of missing the mark. Uh, uh, of breaking a rule, violating the standard, of falling short. And sin is all of that. But it's also much more. It's an act of adultery. It's fascinating when you go into the book of Revelation, you're introduced to the harlot and the prostitute, and at one point uh, the church is called to be virgins, and you go, I don't get what's going on. It's all speaking to this issue of fidelity. And behind it is this, this notion that, look, when you break a rule, miss the mark, you're damaging a relationship. Not just breaking a rule, you're breaking a heart. Because God has this vested interest. It's not just this kind of objective thing. It's this passionate thing. He's emotionally connected to us, and he cares what we do. And thus, when w we are disobedient, it violates the relationship, and it hurts his heart. You know, when I, I think about motivation to be obedient, I'm often drawn to the beatitude that says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it's this idea that the more obedient we are, the more intimate we can be with God. We see more and more of him and draw closer to him. 
think it plays into this because just the opposite is true. When we sin, what we're doing is we're damaging that intimacy and that relationship. It's not that he rejects us, but it does mean that he's hurt. gives us a very different frame for understanding our obedience. Then the last thing, we are to be ready. Right? It's not that at any moment he can come back, but that when he comes back it will be unexpected and we'll be surprised. So we are to be, to be ready. Right? Uh, every so often my wife goes on a business trip and what's really important for me to know when my wife goes on a business trip is when she's coming home. Because that tells me when I have to do the dishes and make the bed and sweep the floor. You know, if I don't know when she's coming, then I have to do that all the time. But if I know I have four, five, she's coming in five days, I have four days of freedom to be a slob. It's important. Well, you get the point. He is going to come unexpectedly. We will be surprised. So we need to be ready to keep our allegiance pure. It's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? We are to we are part of the bride. We're to be ready for the wedding supper. Okay, now the warrior of doom. Uh, verses eleven through sixteen actually describe what we call the second coming of Christ. And if you've been tracking along with us, maybe one of the questions you're asking, okay, Christ is coming back. Where and when did that rapture happen? Because somehow I miss it. You guys haven't talked about it. And you're right. And the reason we haven't is because in our understanding of the book, it's not there. Um, So where is the rapture and how does that fit in? So I asked my small group, should we talk about the rapture? A couple of them didn't care, but the others cared a lot. So I I thought we should talk about it just a little. I think one of the ways to understand the different positions around the rapture is to think of splitters and joiners. Splitters and joiners. Okay, splitters see the second coming of Christ in two stages. Joiners see them simply as one event, that they, in a sense, happen at the same time. Let's talk about the splitters first. They see it as two events. This group of people, their understanding is is what's technically known as dispensationalists, maybe a word you've never heard before. The reality is is most people in evangelical churches today are are, uh, unintentional dispensationalists. You hold to dispensational theology even though you don't hear the word or understand the position. And the reason most people do in our churches is because That's the position taken by most of the media and the popular literature around end times. The late great planet Earth, uh, uh, you know, thief in the night. Those all reflect that kind of thinking. So that's kind of the position and understanding we take without rather really labeling it. But in this position, they believe that uh, at any moment, Jesus can come back and rapture his church. And you see the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Jesus appears in the sky. His people are caught up with him, and they return to heaven. And that initiates a period of seven years that are known as the tribulation. And this group believes that this seven-year period is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. It's the 70th week. Okay, At the end of those seven years, Jesus comes back, After the end of the tribulation, he comes back with his saints and the millennium is launched and there's a judgment. So people who hold this position, you say, okay, if they hold that, where does the rapture occur in the book of Revelation? Now there's some differences. Mid-tribbers say it's one place. There's some post-tribbers that say it happens near the very end and back. But, but the majority of people who hold to this position believes that the rapture happens at chapter 4, verse 1. When John sees through the door into heaven and he sees the multitude that we believe is the church worshiping, we say, ah, see, the church now is in heaven. The rapture had to take place. So it happens there in 4, verse 1. If you take that position, then basically what you see happening in chapters 
6 through 18 is a chronological, linear understanding of the events of what takes place during the seven-year tribulation. So the book is chronological and linear. Things happen one after another. All right? That's the splitters. Joiners. Joiners believe that the second coming and the rapture happen simultaneously at the same time. And you say, well, Nick, how, what do you do with 1 Thessalonians 4? Because it says Jesus comes and, and, and his people are caught up with him in the sky. How, what do you do with that? Well, people in this position are, would say the historical background for that is that when a victorious king would come into a city that had been conquered, the people of that city would often run out and greet him and then come back with him into the city. And Paul is appealing to that imagery to give hope to the Thessalonians that even though some people have died, they will be resurrected, the church will go out and come back victoriously with the king coming in. And they argue that that, that meeting and coming back is one event because the imagery behind the second coming in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the same imagery you get in Matthew 24 and later. There's Christ coming in the clouds, there's a trumpet, and there's a shout, and that's all imagery consistent with the second coming of Christ. So it all happens at one time. Now if you take that position, then when you come to Revelation, you don't see everything in a chronological order or a linear time frame. You begin to see it like we've described it as recapitulation. Because at the end of the seven seals, it seems like Christ has come back. In the end of the seven trumpets, it seems like Christ has come back. And at the end of the bowls, Christ comes again, and then you get the end of the book. So it's this notion of recapitulation in the book of Revelation. So you handle the book very differently. Just so you know, Larry and I both kind of lean towards being joiners. I mean, if you push us, we'll tell you we believe in what's called post-tribulationalism, that the, the uh, or, yeah, post-trib, that Jesus comes back at the same time of the second coming. You also need to understand we will not die on that hill, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's not a big deal <laughs> to, to us, but that's kind of where we lean. And that when we came to the book of Revelation, we didn't come with a way of framing it. We just wanted to say, if this is apocalyptic literature, what's the best way to interpret it that we think would relate to the original audience and make some sense in an application towards us in line with the genre of the literature, okay? A couple things to note. One, there are really good people and good scholars on all sides of this debate. People I like and love uh, on both sides of the spectrum, okay? So I if you hold a position different than what you've heard or than what I'm suggesting this morning, that's fine. doesn't mean you don't know what you're about or you you're not smart. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you've made some different decisions than we've made in terms of our understanding of text. And that happens. It's okay. All right? Great people on both sides. All right? Second, what you believe on this issue does not change reality. In other words, if you're a splitter and the joiners are right, you're staying here. Right? And if you're a joiner and the splitters are right, you're leaving. It doesn't matter. What you think about this issue isn't going to change what God is going to do. God is going to do what God is going to do. If there's a seven-year tribulation and, and the rapture occurs before it, then we're going. And if there's not a seven-year tribulation, this, I believe it's all church age, and we stay until the second coming, then we're staying. Despite our theology. Right? right? Third thing. This is a great issue to discuss. It's a terrible issue to dispute over. In other words, this is not an issue you break fellowship over or fight over. 
It's not a hill you die on. Amen? <laughs> um, too often, I mean, it's not an issue in our doctrinal statement. We don't take a position on the millennium, uh, whether you're pre-trib or post-trib. We just believe that someday Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah, right? That's it. Okay, now, back to the second coming. He says, I saw heaven standing open. The curtain is pulled back. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. So this is a picture of Jesus. He's on a white horse because the Caesars, when they went out to war and came into the city in victory, would be on a white horse. So it's this symbol of victory and war. His rider is faithful and true. In other words, he's reliable. He knows the truth because he's coming in judgment and he has the truth to judge correctly. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like bla blazing fire so he can see right through people and understand the motives and intent of their heart, which allows him to judge correctly. And on his head are many crowns. Remember, the beast had seven heads and multiple crowns. Jesus has one, and all the crowns are on it. It's just a symbol of his authority. He has authority to judge and to rule. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. In that day, they believed that if you knew a person's name, you could exercise some control over him. And if you knew a god's name, then you could exercise control over that god. For example, Keith, raise your hand. See, that's the power of knowing somebody's name. All right? I got him to do what I wanted. Name gives you a sense of power. And Jesus is saying, look, nobody knows my name but me. Nobody has control over me but me because I'm supreme. All right, so no one knows his name. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This can be either a royal robe or a priestly robe. And there's a question about whose blood. Is it his blood because this is before the battle? Uh, or is this blood that came from uh, the wine press, treading the wine press? He's gotten blood on his robe. And his name is the Word of God. This goes back to John 1 1, where we're told that Jesus is the Word of God and that God spoke creation into. To, to being through his word. Then the armies of heaven were following him. This is the church riding on a white horse. Either you believe the church was raptured and is coming with him, or the church has been caught up and now is riding back in with him, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. The fine linen are their good works, we were told earlier. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now this is, this is the only weapon that Jesus has it's a sign of judgment, and it's coming out of his mouth, which is really a strange image, okay? But somehow this sword uh, has an impact on the nations. Then it says, he will rule them with an iron scepter. This is a reference to Psalm chapter 2, where we're told that the Messiah will rule with the iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 63, where we're told about judgment happening on the nations as a wine press, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In that day, when the Caesar would come into the Senate, they would declare, you're King of Kings and Lords of Lords, and Jesus here is saying, no, you're not. I am. All right? The whole point of this imagery is to communicate to us that Jesus has the power and the authority and the wisdom and the right and the ability to bring justice and to judge and implement his sovereign control over all of life and make things right. All imagery. So he returns. And then we get the battle that is and isn't verses 17 through 21. You'll understand why I say is and isn't here in a moment. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in there, come gather together for the great supper of God. It's interesting. It was the wedding supper that believers go to. The enemies of God go to God's supper. This is a supper of judgment. You don't want to be part of this supper so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free, slave, great and small. 
Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. This is kind of going back to the notion of Armageddon when everything has gathered together for this last battle. If you are of that day, one of the questions you had is how is God going to overcome the legions and the armies of Rome? And who is going to win that battle? So we're on the verge of the battle, right? Everybody's there, but then it, it, it's like the battle doesn't even take place. But the beast, right, was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image, and the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword coming out. They're killed by the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorge themselves on the flesh. So here's my question for you. Is this a description of a horrific final military battle where Jesus comes and violently, with his sword, hacks to death all his enemies, and the blood just flows? I think oftentimes that's how this is portrayed uh, in the media and how sometimes, without thinking, we read the text. I'm not sure that is what is happening here. Let me explain why. First of all, we've said this over and over as we've read through the book. This is symbolic literature, and these are symbols. They represent reality but they're not a literal representative of reality. So is Jesus really going to be riding a, a white horse? I, is he really going to have a sword coming out of his mouth? I mean, does he really have fire in his eyes coming out? Is that how Jesus is coming? Wait a second before you say yes. Remember we talked about the dragon back in chapter 12 who was before the woman and the baby was coming and he was going to eat the baby? It was, is Satan really a red dragon with horns and fire and wings? Is that... Well, no, no, no. That's, that's symbolic. I would agree. And so is this. Right? See, we're not consistent, are we? And it's because, man... This description, if we make it a literal, it, it makes great media, great movies, great novels. Wow! But it's not the point. Think about it. When was the battle that defeated Satan and all evil truly fought? Where? On the cross. Right? So when we want the scrolls, the purposes of God opened up that are going to go through history, we are expecting the lion of Judah, and we look, chapter 5, and it's a slain lamb. I go, wow, didn't expect that. It's telling us that, that, that Jesus defeats Satan, not by acts of violence, but by sacrificial love. And then when you get into chapter 12 and Michael is fighting with the devil and, and his hordes in heaven and they're cast out, how do they cast him out? In the psalm that follows, we're told that they defeated the devil and his angels by the blood of the Lamb. Hmm. So third, could the sword be coming out of Jesus' mouth because it represents judgment, but could it represent the fact that he judges by his word? That just as God spoke the universe into creation, so he will render judgment through speaking. And then you look at the ministry of Jesus, and how does Jesus bring about his agenda? He speaks. He speaks and the blind see. He speaks and the lame walks. He's, he speaks and the demons flee. He speaks and the, the wind stops and the water calms. He speaks and Lazarus comes out of the grave. <laughs> Could it be 
that at this final battle, Jesus speaks and the beast and the false prophet, which are these systems of the world, political and religious, they're cast down. He speaks and all the enemies face doom. Could it be that he ultimately gains victory as the slain lamb through your sacrificial love rather than the violence of a sword. Let me sum up what I want us to take away from today. We find hope despite the catastrophe of the judgment that will come by praising God because he will reign justly, rejoicing that the wedding of the Lamb will come, and trusting in the ultimately victory of the Lamb. It's all reason to have great hope. Let me leave you with two final thoughts. First, heaven is not far off. We think of heaven way out there and Jesus coming back from way out there. Could it be that heaven is very near? Could it be that the second coming is simply a matter of God pulling back the curtain, that suddenly the dimension of this world and the dimension of the supernatural are merged into one? Could it be much like the transfiguration? You know, when he's on the mount of transfiguration and suddenly Jesus appears differently and transformed and his disciples say, could that be just a peeling back uh, of the separation between this dimension and that dimension? And could it be that Jesus is very near, not far off, and when he comes, that will be peeled back and everything by his word will be made right and just? Second, make sure you're invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the most important thing in life is to know where you're going to have dinner. Because you don't want to go to God's supper. You want to go to the supper of the Lamb. Because that's the supper that matters. Have you declared your allegiance to Him? Have you trusted in His death and resurrection? Have you become His follower and part of His bride? Let's pray. Father, help us to maybe think a little bit differently about what the future holds, to see you more as you are. Help us to have this incredible hope and to know that one day we too will shout hallelujah. Our God reigns and our God reigns in justice. We pray this in the name of Jesus.